Hello, and welcome to My Apologies. My name is Stephen Cram. Today, we are going to introduce one of my favorite Christian writers, C.S. Lewis. We'll talk about his life, his journey to faith, and finally, we'll discuss his book, Mere Christianity. I hope you enjoy. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. An apology can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. On this channel, we will examine various apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. But if I say something that offends you, my apologies. As I said at the beginning, we'll be spending some time today introducing the man C.S. Lewis. Lewis is one of my absolute favorite authors and thinkers. You know when you're reading something or listening to a talk or a podcast, and you come across a statement that just unlocks a whole new area of your brain? Like if I've been thinking about a question of faith and just sort of mulling it over for a while in my mind, it's just this unresolved tension that exists in there. And then someone like C.S. Lewis comes along, drops a fairly simple sounding one-liner, and it just solves all the tension all at once. It just clicks. He does this sort of thing all the time in his writings, and I think this is why I find myself going back to his books over and over again. It's for this reason that I'm planning to work my way through Mere Christianity, for the beginning episodes of this podcast, however many episodes that takes. The plan is to discuss the main topics from each chapter from beginning to end. After that, I'm honestly not sure. I know we'll continue with content within the scope of our vision, but hopefully by the time we get there, you, the audience, has grown and we can cater more to your needs, which you're asking for. But back to mere Christianity, two reasons that I'm going to start with that book. Number one, I personally want to understand the content better myself, and teaching is the best way I know how to learn something. And second, I think there are a lot of people out there who could benefit from the thoughts and apologies within the book. Even in discussions I've had with many people who are deconstructing their faith or struggling in one way or another, I've found that many have heard of mere Christianity, but few have actually read it, much less engaged with the arguments within it. So I really hope this podcast can be a resource to get people introduced to Lewis and thinking about the Christian worldview that he presents. So let's get started with an overview of his life. Right off the bat, I know the question that's burning in your mind, or at least it should be, is what does the CS stand for? Did everyone back then just go by their initials? Like Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien? Well, I won't make you wait till the end of the episode. I'll just tell you right now. C.S. Lewis's full name is Clive Staples Lewis. That's right. How would you like it if your middle name was also the name of a common office supply store? I know I would not be a fan. Stephen Staples just doesn't sound right. So Clive Staples is his name. And maybe one day that will help you in some kind of trivia competition. But going forward, we're probably just going to default to calling him C.S. Lewis or Lewis for short. Lewis was born in 1898 in Ireland. He had a single older brother who he was really close to, and they would run around, play all sorts of imaginative games together in their childhood. He describes it as a magical time, one marked by a feeling that Lewis would later describe as joy. This joy, he described, is not quite the pure happiness or the kind of joy that you're probably thinking of. He used the word as the best English equivalent of a German word, Zinsucht. This is me putting my German minor to work. Hopefully I didn't pronounce it embarrassingly bad. Anyway, Zinsucht is difficult to translate, but it roughly means a sort of bittersweet longing. So it's not just pure joy and happiness. It's got some components of, of some sadness and some yearning for a better world kind of thing. 
this sort of feeling of, of bittersweet longing, of, of seeing the beauty in the world, but feeling like there's more, it kind of haunted him throughout his life. It was something that he found himself pursuing, and he traced that in his book, Surprised by Joy. It's sort of an autobiography, but including this concept of joy and him following how it impacted him through all of life's stages. Sadly, this youthful, magical view of the world was shattered when his mother died of cancer. After this tragedy, his family life changed drastically. His father, although he was not a bad man, did not know quite how to care for the boys, so he sent them off to be educated, first at a boarding school for a few years, followed by education via a tutor named Mr. Kirkpatrick. During that time, Lewis discovered his love for reading and literature, which would permeate the rest of his life. It was also during his teenage years that he rejected Christianity wholesale and became an atheist, the first spiritual change in his life. After being tutored by Mr. Kirkpatrick, he was prepared to attend the University of Oxford. He only attended for one term, though, before his education was postponed due to a dramatic European conflict that eventually would become known as World War I. He served in France, where he fought and was eventually wounded, and his wounds were cause for him to actually be sent back to England for recovery and eventually discharged. After his service in the Great War, he went back to Oxford, where he finished his degrees in literature and classical philosophy. After graduating, he remained there and stayed on as a teacher of English literature. And keep in mind, throughout all these experiences of the war and his education at Oxford, he's still a staunch atheist at this point. But it was during this stage of his life that he met another notable author, J.R.R. Tolkien, who we have already mentioned. They became friends, and Tolkien was a large factor in Lewis's conversion from atheism back to Christianity. It was not an overnight event, however, or the result of a single conversation. It was three years in the making. Three years after Tolkien met him and they became friends, Lewis finally became a theist. Not atheist, a theist, meaning that he at least assented to the belief in a God. It was two more years after that that he finally made a full conversion to Christianity and became a member of the Church of England, where he remained until the end of his life. So that's a little overview of his life, but what about his literary works? Lewis is probably most famous for the Chronicles of Narnia series, a few of which have been made into full-length movies. But outside of his fictional stories, Mere Christianity is probably the most famous of Lewis's works. The book was originally a series of talks which Lewis gave on the air during the Second World War. He gave these talks on the BBC radio from London during the time where that very city was frequently under air raids from the Nazis. Later, these talks were compiled together and written down into the book as we now know it. Mere Christianity begins with a discussion of our human experiences of right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe, what he argues is God, and eventually the gospel. Next, it moves into a discussion of what Christians believe about God, answering the question, what kind of God is this? The third section goes through various points of Christian morality and virtue. This section is particularly practical, which I love, and it has some really challenging content within it. So I'm excited to get to that point in the podcast. Finally, the last section digs into the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and some other concepts of the faith that are a little tougher to comprehend, a little more meaty of topics. Altogether, the book makes a compelling and cohesive argument for the Christian religion. Lewis is very careful to defend only that which he would call, quote, mere Christianity, thus the title of the book, or Christianity at its simplest, to say it in other terms. He intentionally does not get into denominational disagreements. This makes it uniquely helpful for anyone to read and gain insight into the faith who doesn't really want to engage in these sectarian squabbles. 
Not that we can't disagree over distinctions, but some people just want to understand the essentials that are agreed upon, and that's what this book is uniquely helpful for, I think. So this brings us to a topic that I want to touch on. It's a really polarizing one, but it's a topic that I think is worthwhile to talk about as we approach mere Christianity, and that is the concept of ecumenism. Ecumenism, also called interdenominationalism, try saying that five times fast, it means promoting unity among all the Christian churches of the world. Now, I think we would all agree that unity is a good thing conceptually. Jesus himself prays for this in John 17, in his prayer for all believers throughout history. He asks God that all of them, meaning us, may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. He compares the unity between all believers to the unity between the Father and the Son within the Blessed Trinity. And that's literally as unified as you can get. But we know, with 2,000 years of history to look at, that unfortunately this church history has been marred by institutional disunity. There are many denominations or flavors of Christianity to choose from. And many of these splits carry deeply ingrained hurts and really significant theological disagreements. So this is where the fear of ecumenism comes from. How do we rightly pursue Christian unity, something that Jesus clearly wanted, without diminishing the importance of really significant doctrines? Some people might not have a problem with this, thinking, why can't Christians just get over it and all be unified, while others might see these differences as being super significant and something that we can't just move past. Try to shove a bunch of Baptists with their congregation-led leadership into a room with a bunch of Roman Catholics and try to convince them that everything's all right and you're all on the same team now. It's not normally going to end well. So because of this, some people have found the ideas of mere Christianity challenging or even repulsive at times. How can Lewis pretend like these doctrinal differences don't matter? Well, to calm that concern, we can see specifically in his own words that he's not trying to do that. He knows that doctrinal differences are extremely significant in the life of a believer. In the preface of his book, he says the following, I hope no reader will suppose that mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to the creeds of the existing communions, as if a man could adopt it in preference to congregationalism or Greek Orthodox or anything else. Right there, he's putting his thumb directly on the pressure point of hesitance that people might be feeling. He wants to calm fears that he's promoting a new way forward or an extreme, unhealthy ecumenism. He goes on to describe his hope for what mere Christianity is good for, and he uses the image of a hallway with a line of doors on each side of the hall. And he says, If I can bring anyone into that hall, I shall have done what I attempted. But it is actually in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. For that purpose, the worst of the rooms, whichever it may be, is, I think, preferable. So the hallway is mere Christianity. The faith boiled down to its most essential parts only. The rooms, in this analogy, are the various Christian churches that are available. He's trying to lead people into this hallway because it is the way to get into the rooms. More specifically, his hope is that the people only pass through the hallway on their way to one of the rooms, which they would make their church home. The end goal is to end up in a room. And he doesn't just see the hallway as a replacement for any of the rooms. Even the very worst room, as he says, would be better than just settling to live forever in the hallway. A healthy approach to ecumenism is expressed best 
in my opinion, by John Piper in his article, Does Mere Christianity Mean Eliminating Denominations? In it, he says, Christian unity and Christian truth are served best not by removing fences, but by loving across them and having welcoming gates. We don't need to remove the distinctions, but instead recognize them and add passageways that allow for improved understanding and Christian charity between the groups. I've put a link in the show notes to Piper's article on the subject. If you're interested in in ecumenism, I definitely think it's worth a read. All right, so that's our first episode. We've talked a little bit about Lewis's life, but if you want more information, I would really suggest getting a copy of his book, Surprised by Joy. I'll put a link as well in the show notes to where you can find that, but it also should be pretty easy to find online or even at your local bookstore. And I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to get into the contents of Mere Christianity with you. I'm going to learn a lot just by preparing the content, and I really hope you get some spiritual growth from it as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, share this with a friend or family member who might be interested, and leave a review. I'd love to hear from you, and it helps get the word out to even more people. Until next week, my name is Stephen Cram, and this has been My Apologies. Apologies.